0: My family and I love to watch The Amazing Race. Now, if you've ever seen it, it's a bunch of contestants racing all over the world to try to be the the ones who get first to the finish line and and win a million dollars, all that kind of fun stuff, right? But in this case, they had headed to a country in Africa where it was a war-torn country and landmines were littered all over this particular field, this area. Well, as the contestants approached... They were brought up with their jackets on, all that stuff to keep them safe, but they were given a rat. And that rat's job was to go out on a line, sniff down an area, and discover that actual landmine. Now the rats were light enough that they wouldn't blow the landmine off, and at the same time they were trained to sniff out that landmine. And so these contestants were able to do this, and it's amazing they were able to find some landmines and save people, right? So this is the idea of saving people's lives. Many people die in the midst of these landmines all over the place. And my point today is I wish I had one of those rats because to be quite honest, I'm entering into a landmine in the series. So there's a field full of landmines as was illustrated in the world and everything in it, it's a podcast I listen to. I recommend it's a Christian news podcast, and in one of the commentaries, uh, Janie B. Cheney actually talks about how she was walking home one night, being followed by somebody, and realized she should have been paying attention to what the college had said about not walking home in dark alleys. The only problem was the college had rescinded those adv- that advice because somebody had been offended that they were being blamed for the situation that happened to them and she goes through and explains that but it's evidence that We can see in all kinds of things, in all kinds of places, offense where no offense is, that we can begin to walk in dangerous directions when talking about victimhood and victimization because there are all kinds of situations that we run into that can cause landmines, that can cause you who have been victimized to to think I'm making fun of you or harming you or to make those of you who are just sick of victim talk just to roll your eyes and walk away. I don't want either of those things. Our goal in this series is very clear. I want you to move out of victimhood so that you can move into victory. I want you to move away from the victim mindset. I want us to get away from that mindset and move into healing, move into a serious ability to take back the life that God has given you to manage. In order to do that, what we have to do is really ask this question. Are you living in victimhood? Are you living in victimhood or, or how would you know? And, and really, I want to just kind of start off with this little idea. Um, there are different kinds of victims in, in the sense that, you know, like the song back when we were kids, right? Some of you heard it, who are the people in the victimhood, in the victimhood, so right? So there's a neighborhood of victimhood. And what we want to do is we want to look at who's living there. And what we'll discover is that there are real victims who are living in victimhood. Those of you who are true victims, real victims, you may have had a horrible evil or harm done to you, a pain and a, a great horrific situation. Maybe it's a rape. Maybe it was some kind of abuse. Maybe it's some kind of situation that you, you've been uh, wrongly fired or persecuted or racism, you name it. And the situation is that you have been victimized and has such great trauma that you have had a hard time moving out of that victimhood, out of that victimization so that you can move on to healing. Some of you living in the victimhood, you're you're raised under victims. You've been raised in a victim mindset by victims. Maybe it's something that happened to your parents or something that happened to generations in your family, and you've been raised and trained to believe that you are a victim because, hey, we're all, our whole family is victims or our whole group is victims or you name it. And this victim mentality, this victim mindset is something that is kind of raised in your family culture or in your life culture. Some of you are victims from your own doings. You have done something wrong. You've done and perpetrated some kind of evil only to receive a punishment. And you are actually feeling like, hey, that's not fair. That punishment's too big. Now you're the victim. Uh, And some of you just know a victim. And all of us who are Christians will eventually become victims. Jesus tells us we're all going to be persecuted. And persecution is indeed going to be traumatic and indeed something that we face. And it's not something we deserve. Therefore, it is a form of victimization. All that being said is that everyone watching this has knowledge of someone or will be someone who at some point moves into the victimhood, moves into this neighborhood of victimhood, and finds themselves in a situation that they need to move out. Again, our goal is that you would indeed, no matter how you entered victimhood, we want to help you move out of victimhood. We want you to move forward. So how do you do that? Last week we looked at how Jesus is our victor. He is the one who's given us these these statements from the cross and gives us an example of how we break out. But for us to find out if we're living in victim I want to challenge you to open your Bible to Genesis chapter 3. As we open to Genesis 3, what we're going to do is we're going back to the beginning. I want to take us to the first point victimhood shows up in the human race. And the reason why I want to go there is because this is before racism. This is before economic oppression. This is before bigotry. This is before all the phobias. This is before all the stuff that victim and victim world lives in. And we want to say, hey, all this stuff is a human condition you're not alone. If you're suffering in the victimhood, if you're stuck in the victimhood, hey, it has been a part of the human predicament since we started it, right? Who's the founder? Well, his name is Adam. Let's take a look at this. If you look down here, it starts off that it says, Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And if you're reading that, and I hope you have your Bible open, the serpent is a spiritual being. It is Satan. He's the one who's fighting against God, the malevolent spiritual being of this world. So he is going to tempt the woman, and he's going to start by simply making them feel like victims. Check this out. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? I love this. Did he actually say it? Has God been lying to you? Oh, my poor friends, I am on your side. You've been lied to, right? This is this kind of scenario that he wants to form some doubt. He wants to form some edge of maybe God's not who we think he is. Maybe God's care and plan isn't what we think it is. Well, the woman doesn't fall for it at first. She actually goes on to say in verse two, and the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the tree, fruit of the trees in the garden But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Well, so she gives a good response back. She's like, no, I trust that God's doing some good stuff. And then serpent follows up. Satan continues. He says this, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For the God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. God has the secret knowledge. God has the situation. God knows. And you, you don't really understand who God really is. He, he doesn't have your best interests out for you. He's holding stuff back from you. He, he really wants you to understand that he, you, you can have this greater thing. And So the woman falls for this. And Adam, who's standing by her side, falls for this, takes of it, eats of it, thinking they're gaining something, thinking they're getting something out of this. They fall for the f- idea that God's against them. Somehow, maybe they're just victims. They don't even know it. There's something going on. And I believe this begins to show up as we see the Lord show up. But go down with verse 8. As he comes into the picture, they've just sinned, they've realized they're naked. They freak out and they hide. Verse 8 picks up. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man said, and the wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of, the, of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked. And uh, I, I hid myself. And he said, well, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I, told, I commanded you not to eat? When God asks you a question, you better pause because God's trying to get to something. But here's how Adam and Eve answer it. And the victim begins the man said the woman who you gave to me uh, to eat, she gave me the fruit of the tree you know and I ate and then the Lord God said to the woman what is this that you've done the woman said the serpent deceived me and I ate what's interesting about this perspective is both people end up blaming the other They both end up blaming someone else. In the presence of God's question of what's going on, they can't handle it because they have moved into the victimhood. Now, victimhood, in in this case, is really uh, revealing something. If you're living in victimhood, what you're going to discover is that there is something deep down inside called shame. And they feel this shame when God comes forward and tells them, hey, what have you done? You have, in a real way, they know they've given God the middle finger. They've ignored his commands. They've said, God doesn't care about us. Satan's correct. When So suddenly now, they are in a situation of shame where God shows up and they realize they're wrong. They don't know what to do, so they blame. And this is the point. In the victimhood shame makes us blame. When we're in victimhood, we're going to have shame and we're going to have to blame. We're going to have to blame someone else. Adam blamed Eve, Eve blamed the serpent, and on and on it went. But when we blame someone else for what we bring on ourselves, we actually are playing the victim. You get it? You, Adam did this to himself. He ate of it, but he's like, she made me do it. No, he had a choice. He didn't have to. But he did. She had a choice and she chose poorly and she blamed the other one. No, we have to see that when we're in shame, we want to blame because we want to push off all the responsibility and all the guilt and shame that we feel. We see this in premarital, and sorry, in marital counseling. We're too People will get together and they will blame each other for the problems in their marriage, not seeing what their own decisions were. And it's because they feel ashamed that they're even in counseling in some cases that sometimes they'll leave and one person will say, I'm not going back to that counselor. Well, why? Well, he's obviously on your side. Shame, blame. And what happens is that we're not willing to take a step back and see that the blame we're placing on someone else is from something we cost ourselves when we play a victim. You're living in the victimhood if you desire that you wanna blame someone else. Maybe we'll even blame shift for somebody else in our lives. We'll raise it up. Your child does something wrong at school. Maybe your kiddo has actually gotten a bad grade and you wanna blame the teacher, but not your kid, not your sweet little precious putums, right? No, you gotta blame the teacher because the teacher's the one who did this or that. or. Not. And that's, this is kinda of that blame shift because we're ashamed our kids got a bad grade or we're ashamed our kids did something wrong at school. Etc. Etc. You know, here's the thing, though. You may be a true victim stuck in victimhood, and you're like, "Look, I know somebody did something to me. I know they 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 did. This. I'm not blaming them in the sense that they didn't do something. They did it, and I agree with you." Here's the thing, though. There is still a sense in victimhood that you blame someone because if you're a true victim, often the shame blames you. I can't tell you how many people I've met whose when, whose parents got divorced, and they wondered, did it, was it something that they did? Was it something that, if they had just done something different, when someone commits a suicide, how many friends say, if I was only there, I could have stopped them? How many times do we, when we've been traumatized, blame ourselves for, for the abuse that was done to us, for the things that have been done to us? I deserved it. Oh, I, I must have done something. No, what you're feeling is the shame of, of, of the situation, and the shame blames you. Stop. Identify the trauma. We'll get into that as we move into the series. But the bottom line is see that you're stuck in victimhood when you are blaming yourself for something that happened to you. But if you've caused the problem for yourself and you're not a victim, but you're blaming someone else because of the consequences, that's a different story. In either case, I don't care how we got into the victimhood, I want you to see, is there shame? And if there is, if you see that you're blaming yourself or blaming somebody else or you just feel a deep sense of shame, about some scenario, you're probably stuck in victimhood and it's time to look for a way out. Let's move forward from there because what happens if we stay in the victimhood is that it, it can grow into worse things. Um, What happens in in our story here is that this victimhood didn't stop with Adam and Eve. It actually went on to the children and continued growing throughout humanity. And we see that especially in the children as we move forward into Genesis chapter 4. So flip one page over to Genesis 4, and we'll see as this uh, catastrophe continues. Adam and Eve finally um, come together, and they have a child in verse 1. And Eve conceived and bore Cain. Now, saying, I have begotten a man with the help of the Lord. And so Cain is on the scene, and then she has another son, Abel. Now, this is not immediately after they're born. These aren't like two little prodigies running around on the ground as little babies, uh, making, uh, making gardens and stuff like that. These are adult men who've lived a long time now, far past the, um, the age that we see initially. And as adults, they're starting to bring their worship to God, and they're engaging in worship to the Lord. In the middle of that, it says in the course of time, notice time has gone by. They're far older. There's lots of human beings now. It says, Cain brought the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. This gets interesting because notice what happens. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. He, he gets sullen, kind of gets like just ugh, grumpy. It's like, I can't believe God wouldn't give me that. And I wonder, I wonder if what Cain is struggling with is something that grew up around him. See, what we're seeing here is this guy has such a small thing. God just says, you know, no, 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 no. I, I, I'm going to accept Abel's, but not yours, Cain. And Cain gets all hurt. You know, he gets all mad about it over something that honestly can be changed something can be adjusted but here's the thing about being in victim the victimhood in the victimhood all offenses all little slights are victimization they're not major traumas, but it's just a little thing, just a small thing, like Cain's thing here. It's, it's not a big deal. You're just like, yeah, it is. It's an offering to God. No, no, no. You got to understand. I think Cain was raised in a situation where he was a tiller of the soil, and he saw the garden. You know, he probably heard D- dad's stories and mom's stories about what was like in the garden. Next thing you know, here's Cain, and he's going like, this is not fair. You know, God kicked us out of that garden. I mean, uh, you guys were deceived. Maybe Cain had this mentality about God, because we know in Hebrews, when he gave his offering, he didn't. Come with faith in God. So he's bringing what he wanted to bring because he needed to. And so God looks at us and says, No, no, no. But it wasn't a big deal to get all hurt over and offended and angry and sullen at his brother. In fact, God tells him this the Lord said to Abel, He said, Hey, or Cain, hey, why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? If you don't do well, just note, Sin is crouching at the door and its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. And what he tells him here very quickly and very clearly is, Hey, Cain, you got a choice here, buddy. Go back to what you were doing and do it right. Do it well. I'll accept you. I'm not rejecting you, but be careful because where you're headed, you're starting down a road. You're starting in, in this direction where you're acting like the victim, like something bad happened to you and you just can't stand it. And God didn't accept mine. And he's like, no. No. Calm down. Don't see this as a huge deal. But when you are in victimhood, man, small slights are big deals. And you'll keep bringing them up. In Proverbs, it talks about this. It actually says, whoever covers an offense seeks love. You can ignore the offense. You can put it down because you seek to connect. But he who repeats a matter separates close friends. He wants to bring it back up and deal with there. Keeps mulling it over and doing this stuff. Man, he's ready to divide people up. What we see in this case is in victimization. When you're in the victimhood, you find yourself stuck in all these small slights being offenses and being victimization. And you need to stop for a minute. This is common in our outrage culture. To see somebody post something opposite of you politically and you're just like, oh, you hear somebody talking and says something horrible. Maybe they say a racist comment and you overhear it, but it's not aimed at you. That's not our job to jump in and take that as the ultimate offense and stuff. That guy's heart needs to be dealt with. But let somebody who knows him deal with him. And let's begin to work on these. Maybe you feel like you need to be the one who's inside everything. Well, here's the problem. If everything offends you and everything is hurting you, you are too triggered. And I, mean, I get it. We love to talk about this, the joke, oh, trigger warnings and all this stuff. Look, if you're finding that you are easily triggered, the triggers are not there to harm you. The triggers are there to warn you you're living in victimhood and you need to get out. They show up because they remind you of a trauma that you need to be healed from. They show up because they're reminding you of a victim mentality that you need to grow past. And so what we need to do is not see the triggers of the problem, and we need to stop everybody and, and be okay with where. No, we need to deal with what is hurting in the heart that causes you to jolt every time you hear it so that you can be confident in Christ and move forward. Now, also, there are times where it's just not clear. My friend Steven talks constantly about the racial predicament that he'll find himself in where as a Hispanic man, he will be in certain places and somebody will be rude to him. And he doesn't know whether it's they're rude because he's Hispanic and brown or they're rude because they're having a bad day or they're rude because they're just rude. And so this racial predicament, he sits there and he finds that there are plenty of people ready to tell him it's all racism. He says there are plenty of people to tell him it's never racism. But he says neither of those are helpful. I have to know this person. I have to engage in whether that was something or not. And what he's found is a lot of people are just ignorant. Sometimes they just have a bad day. But ignorance is one of those pieces that exists in our world. They just don't know it. They were raised in a culture that was different. And they just didn't realize what they were saying was offensive. And rude, and this is where grace and peace comes in, and and the ability to not try to grab somebody's speck out of their eye when you got a giant log in your own kind of thing, right? We want to we want to watch our hearts. These predicaments are real. These situations are difficult to adjudicate, but we need to be a little bit calmer, step back, and think through them carefully, because otherwise we wind up li- living in victimhood where everything's offensive and everything's triggering and everything's angering and everything's of suffering and trauma again. Now, if that's you, if you're feeling some of those kinds of things, maybe I'm even taking you off with this sermon. It's a good indication that perhaps we need to move on to a healthier life, move in to victory and not into victimhood. Now, because there's another danger. See, we already saw it with Cain. When, we when we're in the victimhood, you lose responsibility. Cain was told, you have a choice. By God, he says, listen, if you do right, I'll accept you. If you trust me and bring your offering, I'll accept But sin's at the door. If you want to follow him, you have a choice. Do better and, and follow me or go after sin. And what happens is that we wind up ignoring the advice given to us by others when we're in victimhood. Oh, no, man, I can't do anything. This is just, we're so grinding. We're so upset. Cain wouldn't own his own life and do what he needed to do. He was just so bent on the offense, so upset about his his offering not being accepted. Must have been something Abel did, something Abel bribed. He was so mad at his brother, so upset about everything. And I get it, their brothers get mad at each other, but this goes ridiculously too far. And what happens is now Cain has all these choices, but he only sees the one, and he only wants the one, and so he only thinks he has one choice, and that's to kill his brother. In the meantime, you may be living in victimhood because you have been harmed so badly, you have a sense of powerlessness. You don't know what to do. You can't go anywhere. Every time you feel like you go out, somebody else has harmed you. Maybe the issue is too big. Maybe the racism thing is too large. Maybe the government oppression is too huge. Maybe it's a situation where you are feeling like, man, I just can't stop this horrific situation of abortion. I can't do anything for all these, all these kids out there in the foster care system. All these, you're just overwhelmed and you can't do anything. You feel stuck. You're just lost in your responsibility. And again, what I mean here is that you've lost the management of your life. When you've lost responsibility, you've lost the options in the management of the life God gave to you. God gave you the life, it's His life. He's handed it to you. You manage that life. And when we have lost responsibility, it's because of the shame that we feel is because of the blame that we're giving. I don't have control over my circumstances, I don't have control over my stuff, I don't really have real choices, I've only got one choice and that's it, or I'm limited, you name it. And so we wind up being stuck in the middle of these horrible feelings of helplessness. If you feel helpless, if your situation feels like it's the fault of everybody else and you're constantly wrestling with why that guy at work or that government institution or that situation is holding me down. I can't do anything. I don't have any choices. I am stuck in my life. All the consequences on me are because of these things. You might be living in victimhood because there's always choices. And what we've done is we've given up our ability to actually live our lives. Cain does this. He just gives in to his only option he can think of, and he steps forward into something horrific, and we pick that up in verse 8. It goes on to say that Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother, Abel, and killed him. Then the Lord said to to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? And he said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Doesn't he know that doesn't work? Oh, wait, he made that up. Right. So, no, it doesn't work. Uh, obviously Cain is so calloused at this point. He's so bent on his, on his anger to his brother. He limited his choices. He only had the one choice. And now he's so callous. Even when God approaches him, he's like, what? Who Who am I? Is he like a sheep I got to watch or something? Like, I, I mean, is, I put him on a leash. I don't know where my brother is. What an attitude. Wow. But here's the thing. If you live in, in victimhood, the victimhood will breed bitterness. You stay there long enough, that that trauma, that harm, or those consequences, or how you've been raised up in that, is going to breed into you some anger, some bitterness, some frustration. You're going to be looking at things like, do what. I don't have to control those people. I don't have to do those things. I don't have to listen to that stuff. I don't have to do any of this. Maybe your bitterness is fighting you in this message where you're just like, I don't want to listen to this anymore. I don't care about this stuff. You're just, you're going to stop me. I need to get vengeance on that guy. You don't know what they did to me or how they treated me. You don't understand. Everybody's doing this to me. Right. I do. I do understand. The bitterness that seeds into our hearts leads us to a desire of vengeance, and leads into the issue where in, in Cain's case, he killed his brother. But really, as we stew on our issues, what the root of bitterness is is an unforgiveness, an inability to forgive, because there's a lack of justice that has occurred. And so you feel that injustice, and you feel that anger, and you don't trust that God's going to bring that justice. And so you're holding on in bitterness, in anger, in frustration to this thing, and you're not going to let it go. And what happens is your issue becomes the center of your life. It becomes the thing in a very bad way that is just everybody. You got to have everybody focus on your friends. Hear you talking about it all the time. Bitterness won't like it. Just roots itself like a tree. If you live long enough in bitterness as a victim, you'll live long enough to find yourself the perpetrator. Every victim has a perpetrator, somebody's harmed them, but you live long enough in victimhood, you'll wind up seeing yourself become a perpetrator. How do I know? Because the old adage is true, hurt people hurt people. Many people have pointed out the fact that some of the worst child molesters in the world were molested as children. And we go, ah, oh, they're victims, but they stayed in victimhood long enough. They didn't go to healing, they didn't get power over their life, so they wound up doing and recapitulating the very things they did that were done to them they became the perpetrators. Oh, they they had a choice. Well, let's not excuse their lives. That, see what we're doing when we live in victimhood. We live with other people in victimhood. We want to excuse away all their problems and say they didn't have a choice. All it was all their No, yes they did. Do You see how we gave up responsibility and now we move into this idea where that bitterness is there and it's breeding in us this anger, this frustration, this vengeance. It's why gang members don't just lament the loss of their, of their family member or their friend. They want to go kill two more. They want vengeance. They want to go get it. That's why we sue people who are, who are hurting us because they did something. That's why you want to cut off the car that pulled in front of you. It's why you got to have the last word in the argument of your marriage. This is the sake of of this bitterness where we got to win. we got to fight. And I get it. The objection is, well, I'm not going to kill anybody. Come on, man. That's a little far. No, no. But look, everybody can wind up in this place. Viktor Frankl, who actually lived through, he was a psychologist who lived through the Nazi death camps. And as he came out the other side, he had written a book on his observations of how people lived in the concentration camps. In these concentration camps he said one thing distinguished them all and that was those people who had purpose. It was interesting because he would meet men and and women later who'd come out of the concentration camps and talk with them and friends and stuff who'd gone through there. One day he was walking with one of his friends through some fields and there was a garden where a guy was growing some oats and the guy just walks over and kicks down the little garden fence and starts stomping all over the oats and stuff. And Victor's like, stop, stop. What are you doing? And the man looks at him and this was his quote. He said, uh, my sons were gassed. My wife was gassed. I have the And, and all these de- all these." evils were done to me, do I not have the right then to stomp on some little oats? See, when we're so harmed and hurt, when we're so bitter and broken, we feel like we have the right to do things that otherwise would be wrong. And Viktor Frankl said this from his book. He said, these people have to be slowly brought back to the reality no one has the right to do wrong, even if wrong has been done to them. A simpler way to put this would be: sin does not excuse sin. Just because your brother hit you doesn't mean you go to haul off and hit them back. We do not uh, repay evil for evil, as God said. Sin does not excuse sin. This is why, honestly, I don't think it's the we shouldn't rise up and riot over race. Sin does not excuse sin. It's why we don't rise up and, and demand people to do things that are evil. We, we don't do petty lawsuits. We don't get up and, and shout at somebody and start a fight with them. We don't turn around and, and make further harm in certain in groups of people because we have the right. We've been so victimized. The church should never do this. We don't rise up and crusade because we've been persecuted, right? And so here's the thing. Sin does not excuse sin. There's a greater way. There's a greater way forward, and it's not in the victimhood. And so if you're seeing that, I want you to realize what we're living in is that victimhood. And besides, even if you got vengeance, it will not really help you leave the victimhood. Because guess what? Cain got vengeance, didn't he? Cain murders his brother, gets his vengeance in his mind. And this is what happens from there. And the Lord God said, what have you done? This is so painful. The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And so what happens is he reveals the consequence to Cain's Anger and bitterness that has raged out and acted in sin because he feels like he was sinned against. And suddenly, boom, in this eruption, he says, here's your consequence. You used to dig from the ground. Now that's not going to work for you. Now you're going to wander. You can't even stay in one location. And this is Cain's response. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Oh, my gosh. You hear this? Where's he living? right. Behold, you've driven me today away from the ground, away from your face. I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Oh, you mean like what you just did to your brother? How calloused can we get that he's afraid of having the very thing that he just did happen to him? because he doesn't see the bitterness. He didn't see where the victim had led him. He even got his vengeance, but it didn't send free because what it did is built more shame. And with the shame came the blame. No way I can't do this. Somebody's going to kill me. This isn't fair. That's not right. And what we have here is suddenly a case where we believe now that we are more just than God. And in the victimhood, We think we're more just than God. We think we've got this figured out. God doesn't get it. God doesn't have this right. God doesn't figure this out. And this is the problem right here. We think we have the judgment better than God does. In fact, my point is simply this. Anytime we've been victimized, anytime we've been harmed, if there's a trauma that has come upon you from someone else, the devil is right there in the details, ready to take you and divide you from God, to separate you from his face. He wants you to think, hey, You didn't deserve this, and maybe you didn't. But then he takes one step forward, right? You didn't deserve this, and you didn't. So why would God let this happen to you? And now, now, it's not turned towards the perpetrator who harmed you. It's turned towards God. How could God let this happen to you? Why would God punish you this way? why would god hate you like this god god doesn't love you god doesn't care about you why don't you just go figure it out for yourself you know what's better if you had been god you never would have let something like this happen Have you heard these thoughts before those are the thoughts that keep us in the victimhood these are the thoughts that keep us stuck in the middle of these places because the truth is that god sides with the victim if you've been truly victimized you've been truly harmed In whatever way, maybe you've suffered. Someone's been murdered in your family. Maybe you've had a spouse commit adultery. Maybe you've been abused. Maybe there's been blatant racism done to you, and you've been you've suffered for those things. Well, often the victim is forgotten. Isn't that true? Often the real victims are forgotten for the celebrity victims or other things that happen in this world. Often the victim is forgotten. They're told they'd be quiet and, and we focus on the perpetrator and they get off to get to get out of jail and they don't have to go for the whole time. All these kinds of things happen in our world. But note God sides with the victim in the scene. It was the Lord. He said, what have you done? This is the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. God says, I stand with him. In fact, over and over in the Old Testament, God will say, I stand with the victim. It says, the Lord your God is the God of gods, the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice. He makes things right. He brings vengeance. He's going to set it correct. That's what justice is. And he does it for the fatherless and the widow and, the, and loves the sojourner and giving him food and clothing. He does it for the poor. He does it for the aborted children. He does it for anybody who's homeless. He's going to do it for anybody who has been marginalized, who's been victimized, who's been oppressed in our world. This is the list. God stands with those of you who are victims, but not to stay in the victimhood. He was so clearly standing with you that God became a victim. God identifies with you who have been truly victimized by telling you this. He indeed knows he was victimized. He became a human being named Jesus Christ who went to the cross. And on that cross, he suffered and he died a brutal, horrific death that he did not deserve at the hands of the Roman army. And he did this so that you and I would be saved. Maybe you're sitting there and you have shame and you're blaming yourself. God doesn't blame you. Maybe you've been a perpetrator. Well, I want you to know something. God doesn't cast you out if you come to him. All of us in the victimhood, all of us living in this place, God says, I want to lead you out. I have been a victim. I want to lead you out, and here's how I do that. First, I'm going to take all of that, all of that victimization, all that shame, and I place it on me. All of that stuff that you've done out of that victimhood, all your perpetrating, all of your evil you've committed because you thought you had the right to, you don't. It's sin. But I love you too much, and if you will come to me, I will let you out. Because when he was victimized, it says this, that Jesus, for our sake, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What God wants you to do is be those who walk rightly with him and rightly in this world. What he wants you to do is to find healing, to come to him, to first be forgiven from how we treated God and how we treated those made in God's image. And then we can begin to move forward to trust him that he will bring that vengeance and that justice. He will set that court date. It will be dealt with. And he will give you strength to confront in our human courts those people who have harmed you or to confront those people who have done wrong to you, to at least tell them and show them the harm. When that that happens, God enables you to step forward. And so the goal here is for you to grow out of victimhood. Maybe you've identified, yeah, I'm kind of living there. That is an amazingly good step. Let's move out. Let's move out of the victimhood. Let's move into victory. God has given us a way. And so we can be done. How do we do this? Well, um, first and foremost, I want to give you a couple things. Number one, maybe you need to take a healthy step into CR. Celebrate Recovery is a place where you can go open and your hurts, your habits, and your hangups. And you can begin to work through these things. And that may be victimhood. It may be that you need to move out of there. Maybe you need to just get some professional counseling help. Well, that's available too with our encouragers here at Olive Branch. Um, The third way is to keep an eye out and look for an upcoming... Um, study that we're going to be walking people through to get out of victimhood. And I'm not talking about church study. I'm talking an actual clinical group that's going to help walk you through that. It'll be a 10-week study. It's going to be pretty good. And I want to encourage you guys to look for that. we will have more information as the series goes along. But finally, keep coming back for the series as we begin to walk through these various things. We're going to begin a journey now to kind of identify how to break out of victimhood. If you're there or you know someone's there or you might end up being there one day, I think this is good information for us all because we need to move out of the victimhood and into victory. Let me pray for you. Father, I just want to lift up those who are watching this right now. And I know one asked that if you would convict those in, who need to move out, that their first step would be to receive you. God, if that's them right now, would you convict them in their heart to receive what you've given to them, the forgiveness of sins, a new life, a new start. They don't have to be victims anymore, but they can walk in victory with you. I pray that you would impound and pack their heart, move on them right now. And God, if that's them, let them let somebody know that they're sitting with or right there online saying, God, you're working on me. I want to give my life to you. Otherwise, Lord, help all of us as Christians who are sitting in this victimhood to come out, to live lives, to take back the responsibility you've given to us so that we can live for you, to love, live, and share you wherever we go. I pray this blessing over our church. Use them, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.